This is Science Modeling Talks, a podcast featuring top modeling instructors sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. My guest for this episode is Erica Postuma, a science educator since 2001. Erica has taught in both public and private school settings. In 2014, she was awarded the Excellence in High School Teaching Award from the American Chemical Society Central Region. Erica served as secretary to the board of the American Modeling Teachers Association, and as an in-demand presenter, Erica is often invited to speak at state, regional, and national meetings on topics ranging from classroom technology, modeling pedagogy, and standards-based assessment. I teach at a a very small, independent, private school in Carmel, Indiana. We have about 300 students total. Our head of school, every year, we have a different theme or there's something that kind of drives the direction of the year. And last year, our head of school found this article by David Brooks, and I believe it was in the New York Times, but in it, there's a quote that says that there has been research to prove that students learn better from teachers who care about them or from teachers whom they perceive care about them. So tell me, uh, like, how you originally found out about modeling. I believe it was 2010 or 2011, um, a friend of mine, a colleague that I worked with at a previous school, was looking for some summer professional development. She found it on our um, DOE website for the state of Indiana, and it just said chemistry modeling instruction. And it was two weeks, and so she didn't want to do it alone. And so she came to me and she said, hey, I found this professional development that we could do at Marion University. And I was like, well, what is it? And she said, oh, it's called chemistry modeling. And I was like, well, I already use models. I don't need to go to that. And she's like, but we can hang out for two weeks and get paid to do it. And I was like, well, this sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so I went for two weeks. And I remember like on the on day one, I walked in and the instructor said um, after we had our seats and uh, she sprayed some air freshener and she asked us to draw what happened. And I drew, I drew wavy lines of scent moving around the room. And then we all presented our whiteboards and I realized that I hadn't drawn any atoms. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I'm in trouble now because I have been teaching chemistry for 10 years and I don't know what I'm doing. So wow. um, that's how I first came. That's how I first learned about it. That's really cool. So <laughs> now you got paid to go. I don't think everyone has that great gift no. given to them. So I don't want to set up our listeners to think that if they go to one of these, they're going to get paid to go. Do you know how that kind of works in general? Yeah. So um, several years ago, we had a professor at the University of Notre Dame where he worked in the physics department and he applied for and received several grants to fund modeling. He found modeling. I'm not sure how he came, how he first found it, but when he found it, in his mind, it was how science should be taught. So he wanted to bring it to Indiana because at the time when he found it, there was no one in Indiana doing it. So um, with that grant, he was able to provide stipends to teachers who wanted to you know, give up two weeks of their summer to come and learn about this. Some years, the stipend was provided um, as cash, like we just received a check. And then the very first year that I did it, I believe that the grant was through the Department of Ed. And so participants didn't, like I didn't receive a check, but I received a stipend where I was allowed to 
buy equipment for my classroom. Mm. So when you go through the modeling curriculum and you're doing all these cool labs and we're using these vernier sensors, and this was, you know, a decade ago, my classroom didn't have, I didn't have anything. I didn't have any probeware or anything like that. And so I used my funds to buy um, a classroom set of the really old lab quests because they were like brand new then. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I use my, my funds for because when, after I took the workshop, I absolutely fell in love with this and I felt like I had finally found the tools I needed to teach science the way I knew it should be taught. And I wanted to be able to do the labs. I wanted to be able to do um, all the demos and things that I had seen when I did the workshop. So I spent the money on, on the probeware pretty progressive approach it sounds like was this just a school district that did this or was this a state or a regional thing um it was indiana and it was open to teachers in the state of indiana basically there were public school teachers there were private school teachers we did have some teachers who were using this to like refresh their content knowledge we had some teachers that were there because they were being asked to teach chemistry and they weren't licensed in chemistry they were getting emergency licenses and so it was kind of fitting a need, various needs for different situations. So for you personally, what was the biggest aha about modeling when you got introduced to it? Yeah. So I still remember this. Um, my instructor was Ray Hawanski. Um, he's a curriculum director in Pennsylvania now. Ray had this way about him where we would ask questions and he would just say, oh, well, isn't that an interesting question? And then he never answered the question. <laughs> um, so... Um, at first it was really frustrating for me and, and Ray, Ray and I have become friends, you know, since then. And so he did, he has told me that several of us in that workshop challenged him frequently. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I went on and took a, several other workshops from Ray as well. But for me, the, the aha moment was when we were dissolving things in water and we had a, a worksheet that asked like, is this a chemical or a physical change? And I wrote down physical change because that's what every textbook had always said. And he was like, well, that's interesting. Why is it a physical change? And I said, well, because the textbook says so. And he's like, but what's your, like, but why? Like, can you defend that? And I'm like, no, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's just what the book says. And it was through that discussion that I started to realize I actually had agency over my own understanding and my learning, and I didn't need to turn to someone who I felt was more of an expert or more knowledgeable. I didn't need that because if I could reason through my answer and I could provide evidence and I could discuss it with other teachers or with other colleagues, peers, students, and they could question me on it and I could defend it. I didn't need a, I didn't need a book anymore. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's great. Well, isn't that kind of what all you modelers are trying to do with your students is to help equip them to do their own learning and their own uh, find their own understanding as they tackle questions. Yes, because it was when it w before I could realize that my students had agency over their learning, I had to realize that I had agency over mine. Yeah. So that was a huge aha moment for me. It gave me a lot of confidence that I was, I was very much lacking. Modeling not only gave me the tools, but it gave me the confidence to be able to go into my administration and say, I'm going to do this and here's why. I started small. I started by doing that like in, in my administrator's office telling him like, this is what I'm going to do. Here's why. And here's the research behind it. Here's why it's going to work. 
here are the roadblocks that I'm going to have, and here's how you can help me get around them. From that, I then took it to the state level. I did some state level presentations. Um, after that, you know, those little stepping stones built me up to becoming more involved at the national level with the American Chemical Society and with the American Modeling Teachers Association. I started volunteering wherever I could. I presented at national ACS conferences. I was the co-coordinator when the ACS National was in Indianapolis in my hometown. I coordinated the high school day program. Then from that, the Journal of Chemical Education approached me and asked me to write something for an academic journal about modeling instruction and AP chemistry. And in my wildest dreams, I never thought I would ever publish. I never thought I'd ever read an academic journal. (laughs) And And then to be asked to publish in an academic journal, I was blown away. So I did that. I wrote something for their special edition. I believe it was 2014 in the fall when that came out. And I went through the process of peer review, which was a very humbling experience. But it also made me a much better writer. And then from that, I was offered a position as a lead contributor for um, the ChemEd Exchange, which is the online companion site, I suppose, to the Journal of Chemical Education. Uh, The target audience there is high school. Um, We also have like two-year college and some middle school activities we include. And so I was a lead contributor there for several years. And now I'm an associate editor. You know, as I was reading your bio and some of the comments that I've collected from you and about you, I see how active you've been. But I got to ask you this. Were you already really active in the science world of education before you discovered modeling? Or was it modeling that kind of sparked this energy in you? It was modeling that sparked the energy in me. I was not active at all. But to be fair, I was also you know, young. I was, Yeah. I, I think I took my, my first workshop when I was 31. Okay. And so I had, if I have the dates right, I gave birth in February and then took my workshop in June. <laughs> oh boy. So I had an infant. Yeah. So, I mean, I was young. I had a very young family. And so I was not very, um, very active outside of that. But it was the confidence that modeling gave me. It was the community of modelers that supported me. It was colleagues that I met that challenged me, that pushed me, that um, made me question and evaluate and reflect on my practice, that made me a better teacher, which opened so many doors and gave me so many opportunities that I never would have had if I had never found a modeling workshop. Wow. That's, That's pretty exciting. Yeah. So one thing I read um, said that you collect antique and vintage yes. <laughs> chemistry and science textbooks. Yes, I do. <laughs> I have one right here. <laughs> have you been doing that for a while? Um, so I do like to go antiquing. And so I'll pop in and out of antique shops every once in a while. And at one shop, I think I was shopping with my mom in my hometown. And there was like a 1950s chemistry textbook. And she's like, oh, Erica, this is, you know, this is kind of neat. Why don't you look at this? And so I uh, opened it up and there were particle diagrams. And I was like, what is this? And so it was 1950s. And um, I just happened to open to the gas, like the chapter on gases. And everything was explained in proportions and with particle diagrams. And I was like, I need this. And it was like a dollar. So (laughs) that was my first book. Um, And then after that, I started to kind of branch out because 
you can get some really old textbooks for like not a lot of money because weirdly enough, people don't care about yeah. <laughs> chemistry textbooks from 1865. <laughs> um, but my, my oldest textbook, I believe, is um, maybe 1853. Wow. And it predates the periodic table it still discusses phlogiston and um it talks about energy as caloric um and how it it transfers from one thing to another and so um i do i get that out sometimes and i read it to the kids when we start talking about energy um and i say like we haven't always had this model like this is the model like this is published in this college textbook so you know, this is what was believed and we collected better evidence and new evidence. And then they had to go back and change the model. And that's what we do in class all the time is we're constantly collecting new evidence and going back and changing the model. I do have the textbook that's referenced in some of the, the older sources that were drawn from when chemistry modeling was created. It's the Cinco, or S-I-E-N-K-O, Cienko and Plane is the textbook. And it's, this like beautiful like art deco style <laughs> yeah. it's not that old but it's um it's really it's really neat and so you can read through like kind of some of the things that we see in our curriculum and you see where it comes from and so i, I thought that was cool i think it's really great that you share the history the past of scientific development to show that the students that it's not a static thing, that they're learning some stodgy thing that everybody has known forever, but they are actually learning what is at the cusp of the cutting edge of scientific knowledge today. And I would hope that would encourage them to think that maybe I can be a part of that progression. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Um, and that's what I hope that they get from it, you know, and, and sometimes I'll have kids come in and be like, can we look at your really old books? And so... <laughs> Um, and I'm very lucky that uh, one of my best friends that works with me at my school, she's a bookbinder by training. So she's, she teaches art. One of the classes that she teaches is bookbinding. And so sometimes I can find books where the covers are coming off and, you know, they're not in great shape, but um, there's some really cool information in them. And so she can rebind them for me. And so that they, they'll they last a little bit longer. Um, my favorite thing is when I'll flip through an old book and I'll find like little class notes like tucked inside, or sometimes I'll find like little love notes that, you know, from a college textbook. It, <laughs> I think that's really fun. So <laughs> I was just remembering what you were saying a couple minutes ago about right after you had your first workshop. One of the authors that you told me you read was Robert Milliken. And he said, I doubt if I've ever taught better in my life that in my first course in physics, I was so intensely interested in keeping my knowledge ahead of that of the class that they may have caught some of my own interest and enthusiasm. And I think your enthusiasm is being translated to your students as well, I would hope. I would hope so. I, I have had, um, well, just this year, I have a young lady who... She So in, in Indiana, at least in our school, when freshmen come in, they take biology, sophomores, chemistry, and then they can choose after that. They can choose to go physics or they can do an AP class. Well, this young lady came in as a freshman and she had already had biology. So she was a little bit ahead. She took chemistry one as a freshman that put her in organic and biochemistry, which is a class that I teach. It put her in that class as a sophomore. This year, she's a junior and she's taking AP chemistry. So she's out of chemistry classes. <laughs> there aren't any more that are, um, you know, normally offered, 
we do independent studies and we do, you know, things like that. We could create a class for her. But she came to me this year and she said, I don't have any more chemistry classes to take. I would really like to do an independent study and I want you to be my advisor. And I was like, well, it depends on the topic because I, I'm not super confident in some parts of it. Like if you want to do electrochemistry, I, there's probably somebody better that can help you with that. She's like, I want to do chemistry education. I want to learn about how we learn. And she's like, I really am in, interested in the way that you teach and the and why you teach that way. Um, and then the grading system that I use, I use standards-based grading, which at my school, um, I'm one of the only people that, that does that. So uh, she was very intrigued by that. And she's like, I want to learn more about it. Like, is there a class? And I was like, well, you came to the right place. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. so um, I think that we're going to have a class on the science of learning next year. Awesome. I think the science of learning is really what modeling is trying to employ, Uh, you know, from everything I've seen in my, and I'm not a teacher, by the way, I'm not a science guy. I'm just a tech guy, techie, you know, audio (laughs) and video dude. But my wife, because of her involvement is why I've gotten involved and it's been fascinating. But one thing that I know about my wife is that her intense desire to be effective as a teacher drew her to the modeling uh, instruction methodologies, but it was also driven by her desire for the kids to know that the teacher cares about them. And I'm quoting you when you said, I think students learn better from people who they know care about them. So I tend to get to know my students pretty well. Mm-hmm. Can you expound on why that is about you, the way you think and kind of what, how it drives you? Um, I always was willing to work a little harder when I thought that the teachers were invested in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a, a big public high school. I'm a, I'm a public school educated person. I went to a big public high school. I went to Indiana university. It's a huge public university and, you know, having teachers or knowing that my teachers cared about me, that was not something I took for granted because oftentimes, you know, they had this huge student load. Um, yeah. you know, and so it was kind of hard. But the teachers that you remember and the ones that impacted you are the ones that you felt connected to. And it's not necessarily my favorite subject area, you know, where that happened, but it was a class I was willing to work in because I felt like they were invested in me. Mm -hmm. And so being able to give that to my students, especially at the type of school I'm at, we have really high achieving humanities students. We have really high achieving math and science students as well, but our humanities kids are like, we really recruit into the humanities. So they come into chemistry very intimidated. They're intimidated by the math and they're intimidated because they don't think that they're quote math kids or they're, they've been told they're not science kids. You know, they're really good writers, but science and math doesn't come as easy to them. Another author you mentioned was Bryant Conant. Oh, Conant. Conant. Uh, It's James Bryant Conant. Yeah, James Bryant Conant. That's it. He said, I don't see how a person can go very far in any branch of science without a thorough understanding of mathematics. Um, Do you remember when we were talking about, I'm not a math kid, I'm not a science kid, I'm a writer or a musician? Um, I think that chemistry can be accessible to students who aren't necessarily math kids. The way that chemistry modeling approaches mathematical relationships is through logical reasoning and proportional reasoning. The information that is presented to students is presented in a multitude of ways. I ask my students to provide explanations graphically, mathematically, narratively, symbolically, 
So the more connections they can make between these different representations, the more real the math becomes. My class is often the first time that students will see a graph that represents something. Hmm. They see graphs in math, but it's not representative of a data set. It's a graph. Right. In my class, the first semester, we spend a lot of time in graphing and I make them write out a sentence like, for every one gram of water, there is one milliliter. So that they have to make meaning of what the graph is telling them. We talk about what does a y-intercept mean? What should the y-intercept be? If this is the data we're looking at, what should that y-intercept be? Should it be a zero or should it not be a zero? If it's not a zero, why is it not a zero? So we have to talk about what the graph looks like and why it looks that way. And it's the first time that they really start to see why a graph is useful mm-hmm. and what a graph can provide us when it can give us um, predictability power. We can have the power to predict if we can get a correlation. So you just said that the chemistry coursework is accessible to kids without a strong math background. But do you feel like uh, it can be used to help push their understanding of mathematics as well? Yes, I do. Because they start to see how one variable affects another. Mm. And they can start to see how mathematical relationships affect other variables. So especially, like it comes, it comes out a lot in the gas unit. Um, we look at a series of data points and um, ask them to predict what the answer is going to be before they actually do the math. And I always, I'd always taught the gas relationships by using PV equals NRT or P1V1 equals P2V2, where my students had to plug numbers into an equation and get an answer. They couldn't evaluate the answer to see if it made any sense. They didn't know, they couldn't predict what the answer should be really. Um, and in fact, they probably didn't, couldn't even tell me if the, if the volume should go up or down if pressure increases. They probably couldn't have done that. Prior to teaching with modeling, I gave a gas laws exam and the most missed question of the entire year was on this test. And it was a question like, if the volume of a gas decreases by a third, what will happen to the pressure? And my kids couldn't answer it because there were no numbers. They're, they couldn't plug it into an equation because they didn't have any numbers. Mm. And so now I can give that to a chem kid after you know half a semester and they're like, that's the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> I'm like, why, why couldn't your kid answer that? <laughs> I was like, because yeah. I was a bad teacher. That's why. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you just did. You were a little less informed. So. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier in this conversation about the, um, the sequencing. You mentioned how your school, the sequencing was biology first. Yes. Then chemistry, did you say? Yes. And then, biochemistry and then they can choose something. Okay. So there's a lot of push these days mm-hmm. for a physics first mm-hmm. sequencing. I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I would love an opportunity to teach in a physics first environment. I would love for my school to be able to offer a physics first environment. Why? Um, So if students come into chemistry and they have a basic understanding of physics, and when I say a physics first, um, I mean conceptual physics. Many places when um, you talk to physics teachers, I've had physics teachers tell me, oh, you can never do physics first. The kids need to have trigonometry, pre-calculus in order to do physics. And I say, that's not true. That is 
absolutely untrue. You can teach so much physics without any of that math. Mm. You can do it all in algebra. Mm. And I get a lot of pushback from physics teachers who don't want to teach conceptual physics because they don't think it's challenging. And I disagree with that because I think that conceptual physics can be much more challenging than physics that uses calculus because you can't rely on the math to give you an answer. You have to reason through it. You have to understand relationships and you have to understand basic forces and what's happening. You can't just plug something into an equation where it spits out an answer. So if my kids had, a, had an understanding of basic physics, I could expand on things like columbic attraction. You know, I could go into more depth and I could probably move a, a lot faster in chemistry because uh, as it is now, when my kids come in and see me, this is the first time that they see positive, negative charges and attractions and what we eventually learn to call bonds, um, which, you know, that and then when we talk about like the electron, if they had the, the conceptual physics first, my class would be even much, even more robust, even more rich than what it is now. Because they'd walk in with a, a more concrete foundation in that area. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So Erica, many teachers are being required to meet NGSS standards these days to be shown through testing. How do you feel that modeling can be a part of addressing those requirements? Um, so at my school, we have started to look at taking the uh, standards outlined through NGSS and seeing how we already align with them and looking for opportunities to incorporate better alignment. So chemistry at my school is the only course taught through modeling. Hmm. Uh, biology and physics is they are not. Um, I have tried to incorporate some, most of my AP and my organic classes taught through modeling pedagogy as well. And what we found when we start digging into this is that I can point to parts of my curriculum and say, I'm aligned to NGSS. I'm aligned to um, some of the bigger goals, like Students can formulate, refine, evaluate testable questions. Students can synthesize and develop models. Um, students can analyze and interpret data. Students can construct explanations based on evidence. Like these are things that are tenets of modeling. They are ingrained in the curriculum in every unit throughout the entire year. So I didn't have a whole lot of work to do <laughs> in aligning my course. But what this did when we started really looking at our other classes is it highlighted for the other departments where they could incorporate more things um, that were more modeling-like. Like how can we do more inquiry? How can we give students more of a chance to evaluate data? How can we give students more of a chance to interpret data? Um, how do our assessments align with evaluating the goals that we've outlined? So modeling um, has already given me a head start in that department. Like I have a great foundation on which I can just build and make it better. I think some of our schools crank out teachers who have a very rigid way of thinking about their role as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I know you've got some opinions that probably are <laughs> a little different. So can you share a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I would say that, uh, you know, I spent 12 years of my career in public school. I had a student load of about 180 kids. There were some things going on 
at the state level in my state that were, it was making it very difficult to be the kind of teacher that I wanted to be. So I was very lucky to have found a school that not only supports my philosophy, but supports me as an educator and as a professional. And one of the ways that they provide that support is by, a re- like I have a much smaller student load and I have very supportive colleagues and administrators. My administrators never tell me no. I get it. Let's look at that first. <laughs> mm. um, so I would say that my philosophy about education and what you just described, there is no one size fits all teaching method or there is no one size fits all classroom or strategy, you know, for every student. Mm. Every student is different. I do believe that there are strategies and, and philosophies that encourage deeper thinking, deeper understanding and developing skills that are necessary I think that there are definitely like strategies that are better at that, but by no means do I believe that I have all the answers. Um, I attended a workshop once where there was a quote uh, about the strategy that we were talking about, and he's like, this isn't a silver bullet. There's not one problem that's out there. There's not one challenge that's out there that we need to address. There's a multitude of challenges that are out there. You know, my, my end goal, and one of my students just asked me this too, like at the end of the year, what do I want my kids to be able to do? I want to be able to improve science literacy, period. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. wow. I, want, I want to be able to improve science literacy. If my kids can't recite the molecular weight of carbon, I really don't care. What I want my kids to be able to do is question. <laughs> if they see something, I want them to be able to question it. If they see a phenomenon they don't understand, I want them to be able to question it. I want them to be able to question it, and then I want them to be able to design a way to collect information to answer it. Or if someone gives them an answer, I want them to challenge it. I want them to have the confidence to know that they can challenge it. They can ask questions about it. I ask them simple questions like, when you lose weight, where does it go? (laughs) You know, we study that mass is conserved, law of conservation of mass. Mass is conserved. Well, when I got pregnant, I gained 60 pounds. And then I lost it. And my baby didn't weigh 60 pounds. So where did it go? (laughs) And they look at me like, why are you asking me this question? But then they start thinking about it and they start, you know, they start throwing out answers. They thought they knew the answers to this. And then when they say it out loud and they look at what we've been studying and they're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Or how does a straw work? That gets, oh, they love that question. How does the straw work? They're like, it just does. (laughs) I'm like, no, there's really a reason. I'm like, like, why, like, God, my life used to be so easy <laughs> until you start asking these questions. <laughs> I don't care if they, if they memorize the periodic table. I don't ask them to do that. I don't ask them to memorize the periodic table. You don't need that to survive life. But to be a productive member of society, you need to be scientifically literate. Yep. And solve problems. Solve problems. So, Erica, I know that you're pretty active with social media. Can you share with me a little bit about what you're involved with, the different social media channels and mm-hmm. kind of what you're discovering in that process because it's a wonderful burgeoning method of communication. I guess it's not that burgeoning. It's been around <laughs> for a while now. But uh, tell me a little bit about what you're learning and promoting and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I am the Twitter moderator. I am the Twitter account for AMTA. And I also have administrative access to the AMTA 
Facebook page. Mm. In addition, I do a lot of tweeting surrounding my role as the as an associate editor for ChemEdX. So I I run two different I run two accounts. I run my personal account and I run the AMTA account. I think that between the two of them we have over 4,000 followers. Mm. So Well, go ahead and give us those Twitter handles. Okay. So um, AMTA is at AMTA Teachers. And then and my account is at ePostuma, E-P-O-S-T-H-U-M-A. So depending on what account I'm on, I have, I have a different role. On my personal account, before I started um, taking over for the AMTA account, on my personal account, I started building a PLC online. So um, within the public school I taught in before my current position, um, I had some great colleagues, but not everyone was using modeling and not everyone was teaching in the sequence I was teaching in. And it's really hard to be the only person doing that. And it's really hard to be writing 100% of everything that you need to do because I, I did not have a textbook. I was not using a textbook. I was writing everything. I was using the chemistry modeling curriculum. I was adapting it. Um, I was writing quizzes and tests and worksheets and activities. And I was really trying to develop new things for my classroom to meet the needs of my kids. And it was very overwhelming. So I went on Twitter and I was like, hashtag chem mod. I need help with unit two, you know, and I just say the topic and then I would have people respond and they'd say, well, I made this, try this. Or, you know, like, have you looked at this website? And so I learned so much just from talking to people on Twitter. I met some of my very best friends on Twitter. Yeah. I connected with, um, a teacher named Ben who was teaching in Minneapolis. I had never met him before, but he tweeted out a link to his blog and I read it and I was like, this person's real smart. I want to be his friend. So I DM'd him and I started talking to him and I was like, Ben, you have a great voice and you have a lot of things to share. I would really, really love to see you come to a national ACS event. We're doing um, a lot of modeling presentations. Uh, this was back when ACS was in uh, Kennesaw, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years ago, I have never met Ben in my life. We start talking on Twitter and he's like, well, it's so expensive. I'm like, I will get you a grant. So I showed him how to apply for a, a Hawk grant through ACS and he got the grant and he came to Georgia and we met in person and um, he gave this amazing presentation. So he's this young teacher, um, very first national conference he's ever been to and he presents and he kills it. He does great. Mm. Um, and so now he and I are really good friends now. Um, we talk all the time. Um, I met one of, uh, she's probably one of my soulmates, um, and she's an AMTA member. Um, her name's Arielle and she teaches in Boston. And, uh, we started talking on Twitter one day and now she's one of my closest friends and we've probably only ever been in the same room, maybe four times in our lives. Wow. <laughs> but we talk all the time. We get online and we'll go on Skype and we'll write a quiz together or we'll develop a lab together. So that's been really powerful. Well, that sense of community is it seems to be a, a kind of in the DNA of the AMTA as well. I mean, yes. uh, it's been around for 20 years, I know, and it's maturing. But I think the social media channels that should be tied to it could really help stimulate even more that sense of community that the AMTA members have. I agree. So talking to those who are listening to this podcast right now, what would your advice be if they're either an old long time, not old, long time <laughs> member or considering it or just being introduced for the first time to the idea of modeling instruction? What, what are the things you'd like to say to those folks? As the face of AMTA on Twitter, if someone reaches out to me on Twitter 
and asks me a question, either through a direct message or they, they tag me in something and they ask me a question, I try to respond to every one of those. Mm. So there has been many times when I'll get a question on Twitter and I will respond to that person and say, here's my cell phone number, call me. We'll have a conversation. Or they need to find a resource, I will find it for them, I will direct them to it. But I feel like that's very important that our constituency or our membership knows that you have someone there. You're not just like putting something out into the universe and no one's reading it. Like we are reading it. I'm reading it. Mm. I want to address those questions and make sure that the teachers have what they need. So that goes into part of like what it means to be part of this community. Yeah. I think there's room for more to help you with that. I would, I would guess (laughs) in (laughs) in the networking and, you know, so if anybody's listening and wants to jump in and really partner with Erica, it would be great. Especially bio people. Bio. Uh-huh. I need some I mean, I have some physics resources. I have several teachers I'm close with that are physics resources. But our bio community is our youngest community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh anything that we can do to kind of strengthen and support our our bio modelers, that's always helpful. Great. We haven't mentioned the AMTA website here yet, but mm-hmm. would you wanna talk about that and how it resources members? You can go to the members-only website and check out the the resources. They have been updated. They're not all brand new, but some of them have been tweaked. Some things have been rearranged. We've added some resources. We have distance learning modules. We have happy hours where you can sit and do like a video chat with other members from across the country. Mm. And you can connect people that way. You can ask questions. There's usually like a board member or, um, you know, Colleen or Bill will be there to kind of help out. Every once in a while, we'll have those video, those online meetings about a specific topic that could be interested, you could be interested in. I think those are all listed on our website, on the the members only website. Many of those are member benefits. Um, If you are considering becoming a member, reach out to the community, talk to people, ask them what modeling has done for them. We have distance learning modules available for members and for non-members. Every once in a while, we have resources that are freely open. We want you to come in and see what we can do. We want to invite you to come be part of the community. You know, while you can become a member and have access to all of our materials without ever having a face-to-face workshop, nothing replaces that face-to-face workshop. Every modeler I've talked to says that. I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. Explain why. Well, first of all, at least, and speaking from my experience, I was not taught like this. I was taught in a very traditional setting where I sat in a desk and the teacher told me what to write down. I wrote it down. I memorized it and I put it on the test when it came time. When I started working through these modeling materials in my workshop, it was very challenging. It was very frustrating and it was very humbling because I'd been teaching for 10 years. I had two degrees and I've been teaching for 10 years. And I had been successful. Like my AP scores were the highest scores in the school. My kids went on and became doctors. Like my kids were successful. And I could not figure out what a BCA table was. I could not figure out how to logically think through relationships because I was too reliant on the algorithm. And that was really humbling for me and very frustrating because it's a mind shift in how you have to think about these things. And I'm speaking for myself. I'm sure that there are many chemistry teachers out there that understand things in a way that I didn't understand them. But 
if I hadn't had that community and that support and someone walking me through it and doing the labs with me so I could see it and I could do it before I had to apply it, I either would have given up and not done it because I would have thought I couldn't do it or I would not have been doing it well. I There's no way I could have implemented this well without practicing whiteboarding in, in groups, um, practicing questioning in groups, because that is a skill that I think in... I facilitate workshops now, like I'm a workshop leader. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have that conversation before we start whiteboarding. And I say, you know, my colleague who teaches with me, um, his name's Ryan. I say like, Ryan and I have been doing this for a very long time. This is not something that came naturally to us. We have practiced this. We have sat down for years and written questions that we are going to ask in order to elicit the responses that we need. So this is not something that just happens without practice. You must practice this. We've read research on it. We've tried different things. We've seen what works and what doesn't work. We can anticipate the misconceptions. We can anticipate the answers. We know how to craft these questions to arrive at the solution we want. And when you don't have that face-to-face workshop and you don't get to practice that and you don't get to be in student mode and you don't get to practice in teacher mode, it really makes implementing this material very, very difficult. You kind of answered my next question because I was going to ask, can somebody get to be an excellent modeling instructor without the workshop was kind of the question I was coming to. I'm not going to say no because I think that there are some phenomenal teachers out there. Mm -hmm. I know that for me, my kids wouldn't be doing as well and benefiting as much as they are from this if I hadn't done the workshop. And I continue to do the workshops. I did... I think I took three or four, as a student, I took three or four workshops yeah. before I started leading them. And then in leading them, I also, I still get to practice every summer because I'm still, I'm asking questions every summer and I'm looking at the materials every summer and I'm learning from my teachers that I'm training. I'm learning from them every summer. And I continuously learn from my co-facilitator, Ryan. I mean, without him, I wouldn't be half the teacher I am. I mean, he pushes me, he challenges me, he questions me makes me question what I do. And um, he's just been a great resource. So you're really uh, promoting the idea of community again in what you just said. Yeah. Being a member of AMTA, the biggest benefit that I have received is the community that I have become a part of. It's that collaboration. It's the way they challenge me to think about things. You know, they push me to be a better teacher And we also have a lot of fun together. Mm. Um, One of my modeling friends who I met on Twitter, we're in this little group chat now, three of us that are all modelers across the country. There's a, there was a catchphrase that we were throwing around for a while at AMTA, we're a culture, not a cult. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, there's some people out there that think we're a little weird. Um, we're not. We're, we're, we're just a group of teachers who are passionate about the same things, who energize each other, support each other. And I think we are pushing science education in the direction it needs to go. That's awesome. Well, Erica, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me about these things. And uh, it's exciting to hear the great things that you're involved with. And it's also very encouraging to know that our students around the country are being influenced by wonderful people like you and other modelers that are so passionate and so committed to the students and to the work they're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was really fun talking to you. You too. 
Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and type our guest name in the search box. The episode page will pop right up. There you'll find any extra content that was mentioned during this interview. So until next time, keep striving for excellence in the classroom.